morning, everyone. Happy, happy 4th of July weekend. Yeah, you guys are like the ones who slept off the fireworks uh, and came late. Uh, everyone, anyone go see fireworks cookout yesterday? Had some good times? Okay, awesome. Let me tell you, um, my name's Eric, and I'm, I'm glad you're here. And um, there is a whole, whole lot of just straight up Eric Case geekiness going to happen in this time. So, so just, it, you're going to, you might learn things about me that you never wanted to learn. Um, but I want to start, um, I want to start with, with our 4th of July weekend. We did not see fireworks. We did not cook out yesterday. Uh, Thursday afternoon, my wife and kids and I, we drove down to South Florida, Naples, the end of the earth, thought we were driving into the ocean, um, but we went down there to see some good friends, some former E3 community members. Anybody remember those folks over there on the right? Don't hold, the, hold on this picture for a second, Dan. Um, this is their new baby. My, my daughter Emily is holding, no need to like raise a stink. That's not Emily's child. <laughs> so check this out. Wait, so you know what the baby's name is? Case. It's a heavy thing to have a child named after you. Let me tell you something. If they are not your DNA, that's baby Case and my wife. And I think there's one more of me with the baby and my son, Levi, photobombing as 12-year-olds do. <laughs> Go back to that first picture for a second, Dan. We, we call this the human Venn diagram, right? Because it's, so it's from, going from left to right, it's Case, Levi, Case, me, Case, Case, Emily, Case, Durenberger, then Durenberger, Lindsay, Durenberger, Dan. Isn't that, oh, well, we thought it was really cool. We, like, like, we kind of get geeked out about stuff like that. So that's what we did. We got back in town last night about 7 and, and just kind of had to regroup. So we didn't see, uh, there was fireworks going on in our little cul-de-sac, but we didn't, we, didn't, uh, we didn't go anywhere. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. My weekend of celebration is not over, okay, because 5 o'clock today, it's going on. It's going down. Yeah. Women's World Cup final champion, Japan and America, right? It's a rematch of the last one. If you guys, you're about to learn more, a lot of you guys are about to learn more about soccer in the next two minutes than you've ever learned in your life. It's a rematch of the last World's Cup. We are so excited about it. Do not call my house at 5 o'clock today. Do not text me at 5 o'clock today because I'm going to be watching this. Here's a little, another little something, a little a piece of information about uh, good old Pastor Eric. Uh, you know that when I hear the, the national anthem, when it's played, at, at, I cry like a baby at the national anthem. I don't even know why. We went to a soccer game. Yes, well, there you go. Um, we went to a soccer game a few weeks ago down in Orlando, and they start the national anthem. I'm just like, <laughs> tears streaming down. I don't, you know, so... Um, so let me set up, for those of you guys who aren't soccer fans, let me just set this thing up for you a little bit, okay? The semifinals were last week. Uh, USA played Germany, all right? Number one, Germany's number one in the world, USA number two, okay? Now I got some highlights for you, so just bear with me. I'm going to give you guys the, so this is the, this is the way the match starts. There's our, there's our team. We're all in white. 59th minute, okay? Uh, they're in red. The player comes into a box. Our defender pulls, the, pulls her down in the box. Guys, that's a penalty, okay? It's 0-0. It's zero, zero. This is bad. All right, pause it right there. Here's what you need to know. Germany's Women's World Cup team has never missed a penalty kick 
in their entire existence. In their existence. So like we're like, you know, Levi's crying beside me, to, you know, and I'm like, oh man, here goes it. He really was. Um, he is very into these things. But we have this awesome goalkeeper, Hope Solo. And she comes out, and, and the, uh, I understand that the network footage did, did not capture this, but she gets into this uh, woman's head. She psychs her completely out. And so we're going to roll it. Now watch, here comes a penalty. That's their player, a star player. Here comes a kick. Oh, so sad, Germany missed the ball. So, okay, so right on. So then, so our defender, she's really relieved. Just after that, like 10, nine minutes later, our player goes down. Oh, she gets taken down in the box. Now it's a penalty for the United States. But you know what? The United States don't miss penalty kicks. So our player, uh, we line up and like a boss, bam, in the back of the net. We're up one nothing. We're all celebrating the house. Woo-hoo-hoo. Game goes on a little bit longer. A sub comes in. Um, O'Hara is her name. This goal is just beautiful. And for those of you guys who hate soccer, it's about to be over, I promise. Watch this goal. Back deep inside the box, deep, 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 cross. Bam. So beautiful. So beautiful. Go, America. Go, team. So, all right, yes. All right, that's good. So we're playing Japan, okay? And Japan played England in the semifinal on Wednesday. Now, uh, there's a couple of things to set the stage for, uh, for this game. Very dramatic. England has been trying to get to a World Cup final since 1966. They haven't been since 1966. Now, generally, England has the best, um, by some people's accounts, has the best professional soccer league in the world. It's a top level. Okay, but their World Cup, their national teams have been snake bit. They can't get to the, something awful always happens, men or women. But this was the year, like there was this team of destiny thing happened. The women's, uh, England women team were, were winning games they weren't supposed to win. They were miracle finishes. So there's this, oh my gosh, this could be the year that England gets back. They're playing Japan. They get to the end of the game. It is zero, um, it's either zero, zero or one, one. I can't remember. But they're getting to uh, what they call extra time, overtime, and then they get to take penalties. So basically, the longer England holds this thing off, the better chance they have of winning. But this is what happens in the 92nd minute. Japan has the ball. They're bringing it down. England's in white. England defends the player. Accidentally kicks it over her own goalie's head into the goal. The announcers are the best. Watch this. But here it comes again. See, watch. She goes out. She's trying to make a play. She kicks it over her own goalie's head at the last minute. It's devastating. If, if it couldn't be worse, let's watch it one more time. Maybe. I'm kidding. So England loses in devastating fashion. And this sets it up. Five o'clock today. USA, Japan. Go USA. All the way. But you guys didn't really come here to hear a sermon about soccer. I get that. I'm just saying this is my life. So <laughs> we're going to talk now about Matthew. We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 6. And um, we are entering a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in um, Matthew 5, which is a self-contained unit of Matthew, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to go into a new section. And I know that some of you guys are... So happy to get out of the last section of the Sermon on the Mount because it was really like Jesus was beating us up for like three or four weeks. It was like, no more, Jesus, please. 
He's going to shift gears. Um, and what I want to do before we get into it is talk a little bit about how, how we approach the Bible, how I approach the Bible, how you can learn maybe even to look at some indicators of the Bible to know when things are shifting, when topics are shifting. And um, so this is just part of this geekiness. The Sermon on the Mount is a whole. It's a unity. It's not a, a, a hodgepodge of sayings of Jesus. It is, it is its own singular unit. And you can find this out in the Bible uh, very simply. So I just want to show you a few verses of the Bible of, of how we know that the sermon is one thing. We start off in Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2. The text says this, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. That's the beginning of Matthew 5. So then all through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, all through Matthew 7 has all these words of Jesus. And then we get to the end of Matthew 7. And the last two verses of Matthew 7 are this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Those two statements bookend the sermon. And they tell you that everything inside those two verses is meant to be looked at as one unit, one major unit of Scripture. But there are subunits of this major unit. And we have gone through a few of them already. The Beatitudes are what starts off the Sermon on the Mount. That was our series called Inverted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted, right? That's the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the second section is very small. Jesus' statements of you are the salt of the earth. Anybody ever heard that? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. These statements that Jesus is, supposed, is saying that, hey, if you're a follower of mine, you are the people who are supposed to bring flavor, God flavor to the world like salt does. You're supposed to be shining God's light to the world like a light does. And then the, the section that we just finished is a section where Jesus reinterprets and extends the law. And if you were to look at Matthew 5 from 21 to the, to the, end, of 20, uh, to the end of Matthew 5, what you would see is this last section. Jesus says constantly, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So he uses that all through that section of extending and reinterpreting the law. In Matthew 6, which is where we're going to be today, his language changes. He doesn't say that anymore. He shifts gears. And this is actually one of my favorite sections of the Sermon on the Mount um, for some reasons I don't have a, a lot of time to get into tonight or today. But we're going to start with the first four verses of Matthew 6. And then I'm just going to bring some simple thoughts to us today. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your Father who sees everything 
will reward you. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, I pray that you would still my heart, still my mind. I pray that your spirit would be so present to us, Lord, that we can hear these words afresh or hear them for the first time. And God, that you would uh, take our hearts and our lives and, and push them one way or the other as however you would see fit, God. And uh, Lord, I pray that the, the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pure in your sight. Be here with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So what's significant about this next section of Scripture is really the very first verse. Watch out, don't do your good deeds. And remember that, that phrase, good deeds. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Don't do your good deeds. Don't do your good deeds publicly. Um, I'll skip to the end first. Uh, the next, uh, the first 18 verses of chapter six are really an explanation of this first verse. Jesus says, don't do your good deeds publicly. And then the next two little sections of Matthew six are examples of doing good deeds publicly. He explains what he means by good deeds. But I want to sit with this phrase, good deeds, for just a minute because it, um, it, it shows what maybe Jesus' first hearers might have experienced because that is a loaded term in the first century. It is a loaded term for the Jews. Good deeds doesn't just mean a vague sense of good deeds. It is a, a particular word and a particular phrase that Jesus used. Uh, other translations might say, don't do your acts of piety or don't do your acts of, what is it? Righteousness. And this is a very particular word to Jesus' first audience, acts of righteousness. And we're gonna take a look at this word righteous, which we've looked at. It's come up a few times in the recent life of E3. Righteousness. It's the Greek word dikaiosine. Dikaiosine is a powerful, powerful word in the New Testament. It's a powerful, powerful word, uh, but it's a very confusing word because it gets translated in a variety of different ways. So dikaiosine, righteousness, can be translated as justified, as being in right standing with God. Everyone ever, ever remember reading the phrase, maybe you are justified or hearing the phrase, you are justified by faith in church? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Um, it also can refer to God's justice. Dikaiosine means God's justice. It can also mean right behavior. How are you supposed to behave, particularly in light of God's faithfulness to you? So in this context, Jesus says, don't do your acts of righteousness, your acts of right behavior. Don't do them publicly. Now, to illustrate a little bit more of what Jesus is, going, is talking about here and what he, his first hearers might have uh, heard, I want you to consider the fact that E3 is similar. We have a similar language that we use. Um, Jesus is saying that there are things that 
Jews did, there are things that his first audience did that symbolized right behavior to them, that showed that they were members of God's people. Most of it was come from the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father, you know, feed the poor, leave gleanings on the edge of your crops for people to come and eat. E3 has, I want to suggest to you, similar language. So the question to you is, and I want you to think about this for a second, what are the types of behaviors that E3 tells you guys to do to show the world out there and each other, hey, you're members of God's family. You hear it from this stage. I'm sure you hear it from the other pastors. What do we tell you guys are some of the things that you should be doing to show the world that you, behave, that you belong to God? What are they? Service, love, love others, and love God, right? What are some others? Show forgiveness. Show grace and kindness. Show compassion. We talk about, you know, sending people on global outreach trips. Uh, serving around this place. Different ways that we would say, hey, when you do these things at E3, according to us, according to the way we believe God is working in our specific context, this is good behavior. This is acts of righteousness, acts of faithfulness. Um, and I'm just trying to, to, to show you guys that when they heard this, it wasn't just a vague sense of like good deeds. It was like, oh no, good deeds means the way that God's people are supposed to behave. Now, in the first century, uh, as Jewish leaders, spiritual leaders, and rabbis were developing um, their theology, they actually came up with a short bucket list of acts of righteousness. So if you were to ask a rabbi in the first century, hey, what are the main acts of righteousness for a Jew? What they would tell you is that a good Jew should study the Torah, study the Bible, they should pray, and they should give. And what's interesting about this list is that Jesus uh, develops his list of three things in chapter six. He says, uh, don't do your good deeds publicly, and then he actually picks three acts of good deeds, just like they have three, three act, uh, three, a list of three. But Jesus' three are giving, and then he's gonna talk about prayer, and then he's talking about fasting. So we're gonna do that in the next couple weeks. We're gonna talk about giving today specifically. These are the acts of righteousness. But because he's Jesus, uh, he is not just interested in the acts of righteousness. Jesus is flat out interested in the motivation behind the acts of righteousness, which is why he starts off and says, don't do these things in front of people to get attention. And then he goes through the list, giving, prayer, and fasting and he tells, all, repeatedly says, don't do these things, do them in secret. And so what I wanna do in the short time that we have left today is just offer a few thoughts from this passage about what I think Jesus is getting at. So the first thought is quite obvious. Jesus does not say if you give, he says what? When you give. So Jesus is operating under the paradigm that giving is an automatic for his followers. It's not when people show up, well, maybe I'm gonna give today, maybe I'm not gonna give today. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm assuming that you're gonna give to people because this is what God's followers do. They give. This is a simple thing, but it needs to be said. 
Twice he says it. Not if you give, when you give. Jesus assumes that following him means that we are ready and eager to give to his people and to the poor. But uh, he sets this up in a very interesting way. Uh, He refers to giving in a very particular way. So the second thought is simply this, that uh, secret giving, which is what Jesus is alluding to, is a combination of great, what I'm calling great intentionality and a whimsical or spontaneous mindset. Let me, talk, let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus says, give in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, which is all well and good until you really think about that metaphor and the fact that it is humanly pretty much impossible to do. Like, I can be like this. I guarantee you my right hand still knows that my left hand is messing with my notes and probably shouldn't drop anything. It is humanly impossible to do what Jesus is asking us to do. He is using a metaphor, secret giving. We're supposed to give in such a way that somehow there's a separation between our left hand and our right hand. And I think there's a way to do it, but it involves two diametrically opposed approaches. So the first one is this idea of what I'm calling great intentionality. Let me tell you a story. Um, When I went into the ministry, I left the marketplace and... uh, my first day at church uh, as a church worker, as a, as a vocational paid church worker, coincided with the birth of um, our first daughter, my, my first daughter, Emily, my first child. Um, and we had set it up that way just because it made sense for me to you know, come to the end of my marketplace time right around the time she was born. Um, but let me tell you, in case you're wondering, being a pastor is not a get-rich-quick scheme, Okay. <laughs> And coinciding with that, um, due to some decisions we made and also due to just the pregnancy was, was, uh, had some complications, my wife, Shana, she left the marketplace as well to stay at home. So in a 30-day period of time, we lost 60% of our household income. You know, it was our choice. And we felt like, well, this is what God's calling us to do. So we're just gonna trust God. But it was hard. We were not making ends meet, we had too much month for our money, so on and so forth. So I shared our struggle with some colleagues of mine uh, that I was on staff with, just as a prayer request. I wasn't begging for money. I was just kind of like, look, man, this is my situation. It's really hard. Came into my office one day, and there's an envelope sitting on my desk. And uh, it was, typed on the envelope was my name, Eric Case, you know. Typed. (laughs) Typewriter. Courier font. I said, Eric Case. I opened up the envelope and there's a, just a blank piece of white paper said, you know, heard you're struggling. So I can't remember exactly what this part said. Heard you're struggling. Please accept this gift. Then it said this. It said, uh, it said, Caesar has been paid. No signature. Typed. Looked like a ransom note. <laughs> there was a there was a cashier's check in the envelope, right? No signature. Cashier's check. Anonymous gift. Blessing. And for a while, like, I was like, what? Caesar has been paid. Like, I knew that was in the Bible, but I'm like, what are you talking about? Caesar has been paid. And then uh, it occurred to me that whoever gave me this gift, not only did they go through the trouble 
of making sure that I couldn't tell who signed a check. Not only did they go through the trouble of making sure that it was typed with no signature, they paid the taxes on it. And they told me, that's what they were telling me, Eric, don't worry about this reporting as, in, reporting this as income. We have paid the taxes for this. And I was like, whoa, that level of detail just blew me away. Like it was one thing to get help. It was another thing to think through like, oh my gosh, they thought through everything. And I can never say thank you. I can say thank you, but I never found out who did that. I, might, I got my suspicions, but I was never, never, never able to say thank you. Secret giving, giving in a, such a way that the left hand doesn't know that what the right hand is doing. I mean, sure, those people's left hand knew, knew what their right hand was doing, but I would never, ever be able to find out who did that. So one way to give the way Jesus is talking about is to plan things out quite well. If you're a person in this room, in this church, and you have resources, maybe it's not just money, but maybe you're a great cook, and you know somebody in our community or maybe just somebody in the world that has a need and you want to give like this, plan it out. Plan it out. Find a way that you can drop a gift card off under a windshield wiper or uh, in a mailbox with an anonymous note where you can never be thanked for it. Nobody can ever walk up to you and, and pat you on the back. You know? You might need to find... Um, an intermediary, somebody that you could be like, don't you ever tell, and they'll be like, I'll never tell. You know, maybe you give something to this person and then they give it and they're like, I can't tell you who this is from. There's no cooler way to give than that. And sometimes, I wanna tell you, it gets a little bit weird. If you're into like spy craft, like this is a great thing to do because sometimes if you arrange it, you can be in the room when the person gets the gift and you can just watch their face knowing that they can never thank you, it's a cool place to be, let me tell you. It's a cool place to be. And it doesn't have to be money. You cook, you can do things for you. You know people who are hungry. You know people who need books to read. They're hungry intellectually. Just go through and man, like what can I give to people? And how can I plan this out? The other way to give secretly is diametrically opposed to that. And uh, I need a volunteer. Someone volunteer. David, can you volunteer? Just sit there. So, David, sit there. Catch this. Okay. David, did you have to tell your left hand? Did your left hand have to tell your right hand to catch the ball? Absolutely not. No. Why? You just do it. Why? Because it's a reflex, isn't it? So the other way to give secretly is to have your heart so transformed then whenever you see a need, you don't even think about it. Just like playing catch with a ball. The other way to give secretly is to be so in the presence of Jesus and so aware of how he wants you to live that you see a need and before you even know what's happening, like you are rushing to fill it. You're rushing to fill it. And I gotta tell you, like this is a struggle for me. I'm gonna be honest. Uh, I was here with some friends of mine the other night. We were working on some music and the door was open, and a guy wandered in, and we all know, you know, he just came in, he was like, hey, I got to get to Panacea, you know, and, and I got no, ca no gas, you know, and there's, I'm going to be really honest here, okay, so whatever, use this against me if you want, but I'm human, and so I know, right, I'm thinking, right, Panacea, right, right, how many people have heard the out of gas story, right, 
I've heard it a couple times. And there's a part of me that I was like, oh, man. But then I stopped. So I didn't have that reflex thing down. We just breathed out, and there was a few of us here, and we all just dug around. I don't know. I don't know if the guy put gas in his tank. I don't know what he did. I know it's a guy who wandered in, needs some money, asked for some money. I would have gone normally to the gas station and given him some gas and just done it that way, but we couldn't leave. So I don't have that reflex. I wish I did. I wish I did, but I'm working on it. God's working on it. He hasn't given up on me yet. You guys haven't given up on me yet, have you? Good. God's still working with me. So giving in secret, great intentionality, great spontaneity. That's how you do it. Third thought, rewards are not necessarily bad things. And this is counter to our thinking because in a way we should do things just because they're the right things to do. But three times in this passage, Jesus mentions rewards, doesn't he? Three times. He says, when you do your good deeds publicly, don't do them to get a reward. Then he goes on to describe uh, some people who do things for a reward. And then he says at the end, if you give secretly, your father will reward you. So I'm gonna, this is another little geeky section. I'm just gonna show you guys something that I just thought was really, really cool as I, as I was researching this. Um, there is a town, uh, Jesus is, is born in Nazareth, right? Uh, we got a couple maps. So Galilee and Nazareth are up in the north, Jerusalem down in the south. You see Nazareth kind of up in their center. Next slide. See Nazareth down here at the bottom, bottom of the map? Say yes if you see it. Thank you. Right above that, you see this town in a box called Sephoris. Sephoris is interesting because they have uncovered a lot of ruins at Sephoris. And one of the things that they have uncovered at Sephoris is a, is a, is a Greek theater. All right? Um, the Romans operated in that town, and the Romans loved the Greeks, and they had a Greek theater built. Now, this is five miles away from Jesus' home, five miles away from Nazareth. Bible school time. What did Jesus' father do for an occupation? His earthly father. Come on, don't be clever. Carpenter. So for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we don't really know what he did. What do you think Jesus did as an occupation if he had one from, say, maybe 15 to 29 before he started his ministry? Carpentry, like his father. Joseph. So what, the way, reason I tell you that is Jesus uses this phrase, this, this word uh, in verse two. He says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the what? Hypocrites do. And we all go, yeah, hypocrites. We know that phrase. We've heard that. We've insulted people with it. You know that nobody in Western civilization outside of the theater used the word hypocrites until, until Matthew and Jesus use it right here? Nobody. We would not use the word hypocrite if Jesus had not used it in Matthew's gospel. It is a term used only in the Greek theater. Hypocrite means somebody who plays a part. It was only used in the theater. So where did Jesus learn to use a Greek theater phrase? He must have learned it at Sephoris. It's five miles away from his house. Now, how would he have learned, maybe? How would, what would Jesus be doing at a Greek theater? 
A lot of scholars think that it is plausible. It just doesn't mean anything, but it's plausible. It just brings this stuff to life to me that Jesus' father had a decent chance that he, was, he worked on that theater. He built that theater in Sephora's. And if he did, it's plausible that Jesus did too. Jesus is hanging around the theater. He hears this phrase, hypocrite. Jesus is like, that's good. That's good. So he tells people, hey, the hypocrites, they come into a synagogue. They make an announcement. Hey, I'm going to give to somebody in need. And Jesus says, when they do that, they have received all the reward they will ever get. All the reward they'll ever get. So there are people that Jesus is saying, there's people in the religious world, watch it, there's people in the religious world who give in such a way that they want the recognition. I remember like, I'm not, I know there's really good, I mean, I, there are saints in the church. The church is my mother. The church has made me who I am. But you know the pews with the names on it? You ever, has everyone been in a church and got the name, like this pew is like, you know? Everybody been in a church that has like a person's name on a building, you know? I don't think those people demanded it. But Jesus is saying, like, if you go to a church and you're like, hey, I'm going to give you this money, but you better make sure my name gets on that pew. You know what Jesus is saying? Good job. You got your name on a pew. That's your reward. Isn't that hard? Jesus says, if you do something for the, attention, for, for the purpose of getting attention for it, Jesus is like, there you go. You got your reward. Your reward is your attention. Your reward is the name on the building. Your reward is whatever that thing is. And that's a hypocrite. But then he goes on and says at the end, give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will do what? He'll reward you. Well, what does a reward from God look like? You know, I want that reward. Jesus is like saying, don't do these things publicly, but there is a reward that'll happen if you do it privately. Now, here's what I think. I think the reward is the fourth thought. I think the reward that God gives us when we give privately, when we give secretly, when we take our hands off our stuff and say, I want to give and I don't want any credit for it, the reward is that we get our pride dismantled just a little bit. Because we can get our hands wrapped tight around a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, you really take your hands off something and you give it and you don't want the credit. You don't, you don't want to be able to, to, you know, walk up to somebody and pat, pat their hand. Hey, you, you know why you get to go to camp? That's me. You know, you know why that sound system, you know why that sound system is there? That's me. When Jesus says you just separate all that stuff, something gets unlocked in your heart, I think. Now, Here's what I want to be clear about. Pride is a good thing for a lot of us, for, for most of our lives, you know. Pride is not in and itself bad, especially when you're teens, 20s, 30s. Pride is simply something that you look at that, that you say, man, I did that. This is what I believe in. I'm proud of the ability to play music. I'm proud of my ability to hunger after knowledge. We need pride. It tells us what we believe in. It tells us what we're passionate about. It tells us, like, this is, this is what I'm going to give my life to. But for a lot of us, and I'm going to be honest, for a lot of us, and you got to have a little bit more white hair on your head than, than some of us, 
we know that there gets to a point in your life where that doesn't do it anymore. And, and you get to a point of, of your life and you're like, you know what? Like, I'm proud that I can play music, but it doesn't define me anymore. And you get to a point of your life when you really want to be about letting go of things more than holding on even tighter. And when you can't let go of things, that's when pride becomes that thing that, that, that limits you. And we all need release from pride at some point in our lives. And Jesus is saying, secret giving, oh, that's a good one. Give so you can't be thanked. Give so someone will never know. You can't take pride in that. And when that happens, whenever I'm talking about pride, whenever, I'm, whenever I think about it in my life, I always think about a big exhale. Like whenever I get a little bit over my pride, I breathe out. Because a little, because I'm full of my ego. I love me some me. Okay? I can be fooled up with Eric. And you know, when I get over my pride, you know what I do? I make a little bit of room for God. I make a little bit of room for his spirit. And he's like, boy, thanks for letting me in a little bit. I can kind of wiggle into this space. That's what pride, that's what getting rid of pride does. It makes room for God in your life. But it doesn't happen naturally. You don't drift into this. So Jesus is saying, hey, you want to battle your pride? Give secretly. So I'm going to leave you with two questions. First question is this. Is your life arranged in such a way that you can be a forgetful mercenary? That you can say, give me that reward. I'm a mercenary, man. I want the biggest payoff I can get. I want to battle my pride, but I want to do it in such a way that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Is your life arranged for that? Are you prepared? You know? This is hard stuff. Because you got to have your house sort of in order. You got to be able to look at your budget and kind of know like, man, I want to be able to give more than I want my stuff and my fun. You know? Jesus talks about this attitude of like, man, when you give, and a lot of us have a problem with that. And I guess I have two thoughts for you. If you have struggled with your finances, uh, we support and endorse this thing called Financial Peace University by a guy named Dave Ramsey. Um, we don't have plans to do one in the immediate future, but there are classes coming up in Tallahassee. You don't have to go through E3, but you should go. You should go. Because you want this, man. You want to be able to give. You want to be able to help. You want to do battle with your pride. Trust me. So uh, be prepared that way. And then understand that sometimes, even if you get your, your, your financial house in order, we still have this tendency in our lives to, to, to have our budgets a little bit inverted. So we, we give to God off the top, then we save, and then we pay our bills, and then we have fun. And then at the bottom, if we're lucky, we go, well, Maybe there's some left over to do some giving. And I think sometimes what we need to do is we need to own the fact and, and maybe we need to flip our budgets upside down. We need to say, okay, I'm gonna give to God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that 10% or whatever it is. Uh, the New Testament model was much bigger than 10%. Radical generosity. Then I'm gonna save. Then I'm gonna pay my bills. But then what if you took that spot and you said, you know what, before I have my fun, I'm gonna slot some money in for giving. We have some friends who do that. 
And they say, they take the approach, they say, you know what? We're gonna trust that God is gonna give, gonna bring somebody across our radar screen this month that needs some money. We don't know who it is. We've got the stuff that we already give. We're just, this is set aside for this spontaneous thing. And I believe that every single month, God is faithful to that. They'll be like, well, we didn't know we were gonna give to this person, but like they showed up and they had a need. But guess what? We'd already set the money aside. So here you go. We're ready, we're ready, ready. Um, the second question is this. Whose approval or what reward are you seeking? Are you giving in such a way that you want the applause? Because if you want it, I'll give it to you. There you go. Or do you want something bigger and deeper and more revolutionary? Do you want to do battle with your pride? Because God's all about it. C.S. Lewis had this quote that just blew me away the first time I heard it. I'm going to share it with you now. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God is saying, uh, don't settle for less. Don't look for a reward that's less. He says, look for the reward that is amazing. Look for the reward that will set you free. Don't just settle for your name on a pew. Don't just settle for a pat on the back. Settle, shoot for freedom. Desire the highest reward that you can actually think of. Secret giving. Doing your good deeds, your act of faithfulness, of righteousness in secret is a key first step to being set free. Would you guys pray with me?